Well, greetings, everybody. I'm glad. Oh, there's way more people than I thought when I sat down. I'm glad to see so many of you. This was, uh, there was talk this week about whether or not we'd have this meeting in this heat, and I'm glad to see how many of you were faithful. Uh, but I did tell the deacons as we were preparing for this meeting, I'm not going to go long. I'll keep it short. We'll have a shorter meeting this week, so... So I've committed, so uh, now I've done it publicly too. You know, it's not the, I don't generally think of preaching, uh, the preacher's job is not to be novel. In general, what, what I think of the, the, the ministry of preaching to the church, there's two, two main functions. I mean, maybe there's other ways to think about it, but one thing is to remind people of, of who we are, of what those scriptures say, and and the other thing is to apply them. Those are the two main jobs of, of the preacher. And it's, um, it's a worthwhile task. I mean, um, I th- if I was to tell you today, I want you to start something that's going to stay on a singular course for 2,000 years, like how would you do that? Like that's a pretty impressive task, that there's something called Christians from the first century to the 21st century, and generally they believe the same stuff. Um, we're still talking about doing and believing the same things over two millennia, and that's not a small thing. And the way that that's happened is incrementally through reminding ourselves of who we are and what God's done and what he says in the scriptures and how we should think about those things and believe those things. And so today I want to I want to kind of I want to take a chance and just look back at our history as a people and remind us of some things. Paul had a um, Paul had a metro church uh, that had a lot of problems. Um, They had doctrinal questions to resolve, they had governance and order issues, they had sin problems, they had maturity problems. There's a couple times in this letter um, that he even has to reassert or remind them of his own place in the church, like who he is to them and why they should listen to him. I'm speaking, of course, about the Corinthian church, um, and it's it's funny, the, the, one of the features of being the 21st century of the church is that we have different ideas about these things than would have been the natural environment. Like if you were at Corinth when Paul was writing these things, that's a very different perspective than us reading them because now like we have all this time of Christian history and the church is a big thing and it's talking about billions of people across the world and certainly across history. This is, you know, Western civilization is kind of built on the, on the back of, of a Christian ethos. There's all this stuff and then the scriptures are codified and translated and communicated and passed down and we all read them and we have them on our shelves and this is a very different world that we live in. When, we, when I pick up a Bible and I read 1 Corinthians, it's very different than when a letter comes to the Corinthian church. Like when the letter comes to the Corinthian church, this is all very small. Like, small men doing small things in a small movement. In terms of the empire, in terms of Judaism, in terms of paganism, this is just a little niche of people that are trying to eke out their way to be faithful to Jesus, who they really believe in and who they've really been changed by. And so, so I'm not diminishing Paul's importance or relevance to the first century church. I'm just saying the scope is way smaller. 
And to read this letter in the first century is just about your own problems in your own church and somebody trying to help you sort it out. And so think of the Corinthian epistle, especially the first Corinthians, along that line. I, I was, as I was preparing this, I was just thinking through the chapters, you know, the introduction. He deals with, uh, he deals with all kinds of stuff, you know. He talks about the gospel. He talks about um, who he is and why he has a place to be saying this stuff. He talks about their immaturity in the third chapter. He talks about factionalism. Um, he talks about the fornication that's among them and the sin that's in the church and how, how dangerous and fatal that is to the health and the future of the church. He talks about going to law with each other. He talks about all these like very gritty, real-life problems in the Corinthian church. He answers questions they had in the seventh chapter about marriage and singleness and how these things are supposed to work. A mixed homes. Imagine the problem there was with mixed homes in the first century between people who became Christians and were married to, to pagans. He talks about idols. He vindicates his own authority and place in the church. He addresses their communion. He addresses order and the head covering. And then he goes on to talk about spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and these manifestations that were happening. And then what happens, what happens is it seems like, and I, this, is, this is very much my own reading. Maybe other people don't read it this way. But it seems like when we get to the 13th chapter, it's like, in the midst of, like he's been digging a hole, like he's trying to lay all this foundation, he's doing all this spade work to try to teach them and show them and, and give specific direction to specific issues. And then it's like you get to the 13th chapter and he hits the pause button and he steps back, he steps way back. And, he's, and it's, like, it's like a reset. It's like, I think, he's, I think what he's doing in the 13th chapter when we come here is he says, hey, let's get back to why we're talking about this stuff. All these details we've gone through, the ego problems, the interpersonal stuff, the factions, the divisions, the turmoil in the church, the sin, all this stuff. Hold on a second. We need to remember why we're here. We need to remember what really matters. So let's look at the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. After all of that, microcosm of problems right in the middle of it he breaks into this though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity I'm become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have no charity, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burnt and have not charity, it profits me nothing. That's the grand reset of the whole book. 
We can lay out all of the details. We can fix all the problems. We can deal with all the sin. I can correct all your doctrinal understandings. I can heal all your factionalization. I can do all this work. But if you people don't learn how to have charity for each other, none of it matters. It just doesn't matter. If we fix everything else and we don't do this, we're still a failure. And that seems very relevant to me right now for us as a people. Because we have problems, we have questions, we have divisions, we have struggles, we have strifes, we have contentions, we have doctrinal controversies, we have things that we're wrestling through, we have questions we're asking, we have things that need answers. And I can very much sympathize with Paul this morning in saying, hey, 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 if we fix all that stuff and we don't learn how to take care of each other, if we don't learn how to, how to love each other, then, then, then it doesn't work. The real answer, the real answer behind all of those other things, the real answer behind the questions, the real answer behind the doctrinal controversies, the real answer behind the factions is, is to be who we're supposed to be, people of love. People who love each other well. People who love each other well. And so I want to just stop for a moment and look at each of these features that he just kind of rattles off about his concepts of what love is. I like... Most of you know I like King James. I think, I don't know if I'm the only one of us here that uses King James, but I'm one of the few. And I don't have any problem with that. It's fine. Uh, I, I've even thought about changing myself, but I, I just can't do it. I'm too stuck in my ways. But, but here's a place where I actually appreciate, I know it sounds archaic to use the term charity for love, but I think it's a good reset too, because here's the thing. Love Love means a lot of things in common vernacular. I, can, I love Doritos, or I love my wife, or I love all these things. But the reason I like the old concept of love that's, that's translated charity is because even, even though it's changed, it's morphed a little, and we think of charity as like giving money to somebody for, that's poor or whatever else, that's, that's kind of like the, probably the biggest, if you were go out and ask people on the street what the word charity means, that's what they say. It gives money to somebody who's poor. But the reason that's relevant is because that word charity means that whatever is, means it's, it has an outcome. It's an action. It's not just a feeling. Because whether I love Taco Bell or love my wife or love my children or love my church or love my dog, like you have to supply the context. And it's all about a feeling. But if I talk about charity, that means something that's motivating you to act. It's causing an outcome in the real world. And I think that's why it's a good reset on our word for love. Something that causes an action and an outcome. It moves you to respond. And that's, that's how we should think of these things. So let's look, and I'll, I'll read it in the King James. Charity suffers long. It's long-suffering. You know, this begs the question, if you want to love people, you, you're going to invite some suffering. 
Because if love is long-suffering, then there's suffering to be had, and it's going to take a while to work things out. That's easy to forget. You ever get to a place in a relationship with somebody, and, you're, and you get to the place where there's been trouble, there's been turmoil, and you finally get to this, and you say, I have had enough of this. I'm not putting up with this anymore. That sentiment is the end of charity. That unwillingness to, to forbear. I've had enough, I'm done with you, I'm done with this. That's, that's the terminal point where charity has stopped. And I was sad when I was thinking about this this morning, how many times I've gotten to that place with people in my life. Where I've said, enough, enough of you, I'm done with you. That's the end of charity. But if we want to exercise charity, there's going to be some putting up with. He says that um, charity is, suffereth long and is kind. You know, kindness is a really undervalued feature. It's, it's nice because kindness is something... Uh, we tell the children all the time, be kind, be kind, be kind. It's, 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 hard. it's an easy metric. Like, you know if something's kind or not. You know if something's abrasive or coarse or mean-spirited. Kindness is just that it's like the social gentleness. Like wanting to keep engagement open is kind. The way you say, why do we say please and thank you? So we want to be kind. We don't want to be demanding. We don't want to be harsh. We don't want to be... We want, we want two-way communication, and kindness is what keeps things two-way. Charity envies not. It doesn't envy. Charity, when we're operating from a, from a, from a place of charity... What we're, we want the other person's good. We're not jealous. We're not envious. We don't get upset when somebody else gets something good and we don't have that. Charity doesn't do that. Charity has the capacity to really, has the empathy to really be glad for, for the good things in other people. Instead of envying them. Charity vaunteth not itself and is not puffed up. It's not proud. It doesn't have to be better than others. It never has this attitude of, oh yeah, you're not so hot, I could do that too, or you're not as good as you think you are. Like Charity's really always building people up and encouraging growth and and health and life, it's the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of, of Satan in the throne room looking at the Most High and saying, I bet I could do that. I'm as good as he is. That's the opposite of charity. It's not proud. Because proud when you're proud, you're the center of the world. 
And charity doesn't do that. Charity doesn't put itself at the center. That's the best way to say it. Charity doesn't have itself at the center. It has someone else as its object. It does not behave itself unseemly. It's not crass or unbecoming. It's winsome and appropriate and responsive and measured. Charity is honorable. seeks not her own. There's that same, it's, it's, it's like the, the positive version of not being proud. It says that it's not easily provoked. Let's talk about offenses for a minute. Provocation. To be provoked. I think of this a lot in terms of, of being offended. And let, let's think about that for a minute. There's a couple of ways to be offended. Somebody can do something wrong to you and you can, you can think, ah, that guy's a jerk or that lady's mean or she doesn't, whatever. And maybe they are. Some people are mean. That's, that, that does really happen. But I think that the worst kind of offense, the worst kind of provocation, it's a weird dynamic. It's on behalf of someone else. Okay, so imagine a scene where you see me and Zach Johnson have a conversation. And you don't think I was very nice to Zach. And you think, ah, Matthew, he's just really, why is he like that? He's kind of crass and rude to him. I can't believe he did that to Zach. That was really mean. I'd feel terrible if I was Zach. And... And so then you go on with your life, and every time you hear me say something, you're like, there he is again, that's that Matthew, that's that guy, he's so rude, he's so mean, he's so coarse, he's so all these things. I see it every time I hear him. And what's, what that's stemming from is an offense that you took for Zach. Now here's the problem. Uh, that's a natural thing to do. We do that as humans. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a common feature of social environments. But here's the problem with it, and here's what we don't often account for when we go through that process. Is that if I, who knows, maybe I was having a bad day. Maybe I was mad, maybe I was being carnal, maybe, maybe the situation warranted it and you didn't know all the details. Who knows, whatever the, de whatever the details are of the two people that were in conflict, we have the space to reconcile it. So Zach can come back to me the next day and he can say, hey Matthew, I felt like you were kind of rough the other day. Like, was something going on? Did I do something? Is there something? Well, let's work this out and let's find resolution. And I say, you know what, you're right, brother. Uh, Eric has gone in Oregon. The boy's got in a car accident. You caught me at a bad time. It was wrong of me. I'm really sorry. I shouldn't be like that. Uh, will you please forgive me? And he says, yeah, brother. I'm so glad that we're able to find peace. Gives me a hug. We kiss each other. We go on our way. Everything's good. Now, there's no problem with me and Zach. We've reconciled. But there you are walking around in your world and you're still carrying around Zach's offense. And how are you going to fix that? How does that get resolved? There's no place to fix that. There's no remedy for that. Because it's not yours to carry. 
The, we, have these, we have these processes in the church, and they're important. It's important, the way that the Bible talks about how to deal with conflict resolution, and how to keep things in order, and how to deal with people that you have a problem with, and how to go to them, and then if, they can't, if you can't work that out, then bring somebody with you, and then go to the church. Like, there's a protocol for how we do, deal with this stuff as a, as a group of people. We're all committed to these ideals and these principles, and they matter, and they matter in these ways, because... There's a mechanism if me and Zach have a problem to solve that. There's not a mechanism for me to know that you have a problem with what happened with Zach. That's not how it works. It doesn't. And that stuff, when you, as that splinters off in the church and reverberates, it makes like it's like throwing a handful of rocks into the pond. There's just ripples everywhere. And that we're not, we don't have good tools to deal with that. And so this issue of offense and provocation, it, it needs to be low. We need to bring it down. It needs to be, we, we're trying to cultivate our relationships and our care for one another such that it's hard to be offended. The people that I really know and that I really care about and that when, when they have bad days, when things don't go right, when the conversation isn't very smooth, when there's trouble or tension, I have, reckon, I have a way to accommodate that. I have a way to deal with it. We do it with our family, with our children, with our parents, with our, our close people. We know that things aren't always smooth. Things don't always just, it's not always, you know, unicorns and rainbows. Sometimes life is hard and people respond poorly and all these things. But when people, the people that you love... You have a high threshold for them having problems because you love them. That's the point. It's not easy to provoke someone that you, that if you, that's loved. So these provocations for other people are the hardest things to deal with. But the other thing is that in the, in the more traditional sense, a provocation, it's hard to fight with somebody who loves you. Like, this is a premise of our principles of non-resistance and non-violence is that we believe that love can not only salve the relationships that were close, but like our enemies and people who want ill for us, we think that we can have the best chance of remediating those situations and making them well through love. And being provoked, pro provocation causes the desire to fight back. That's what love doesn't do. It doesn't want to come out swinging. It's love that causes us to turn the other cheek. It's love that causes us to yield. It's love that causes us to want to do good to those that hurt us. It's hard to provoke. It's hard to get a rise out of somebody who won't fight with you. It's hard to be mean to someone who's always looking out for your own, for your good. And the beauty of this situation is that if we as the people of God, as we as the church here in Boston, as we as our communities, if all of us embrace these kinds of patterns of behavior, it's like this virtuous cycle. Like there's no offense that we can't overcome. There's no problem. There's no interpersonal uh, 
agendas. There's, no, there's nothing that can break through if, if, if even a majority of us are, are saying, I'm not going to be easily provoked. I'm going to put other people first. I'm going to practice love like Christ did for his bride. I'm going to be Christian in how I deal with people. Then there shouldn't be anything that can stop us. Nothing can break us apart. But Paul's worried about it. He's worried about it with the factions and, and, and the controversies, and that's why we come to this place. It's not easily provoked. It thinks no evil. It's so easy in the midst of conflict and controversies and problems to, to just go around assuming other people's motives. It's really easy. It's just an interpersonal confirmation bias. Well, I know him. I know how he is. I know her. She's always that way. But that's not how charity acts. It rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. There's a proper moral code. Good is always better than evil. Love always wants good and doesn't want bad. Good is, love is always positive. It's a positive force. It doesn't want bad things. That feeling of vindication when bad things happen to people who you think are problem actors, that's not coming from a heart of charity. It may come from a sense of justice, and there are good things about a sense of justice, but that's not charity. Charity doesn't want bad. Rejoices in the truth. And then there's these really like big statements that round out this, this paragraph. Charity bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. I think um, a lot of times, I think we put this in terms of like kind of a naivete. Like, it's just a willful ignorance. Like, love is not willful ignorance. It's not ignoring things. It's believing in the power of love. So, it's not willful. It's just like, um, I'm not going to say that. The way that love bears all things, like it's not willful ignorance because it's willing to do the work to produce the outcome. It's not, it's not just like, if it, I'll just be happy with the world and happy things will come back. I'm just going to believe the best about everybody and then the, the, the best things will happen. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's willingness to engage and get in there and hold up the things that are weak and to fix the things that are broken and hold together. It's the commitment to get into the problems and bring health and life and nourishment and healing. It's, bear, it's holding up the weight of the church. That's what love does. It bears all things. It's like the foundational pillars of the church. It bears, it holds the weight 
So we all bring our own weight and our own baggage and our own problems and our own character flaws and our own insecurities. We bring those things in and the thing that holds up the floor so it doesn't fall out from underneath of us is love, bearing all things. It's a load-bearing thing. And it believes all things in that it's quick to accept. It wants, it, love causes me to want to believe the best. When my love wanes for someone, then, then they lose the benefit of the doubt. They lose trust. They lose, I lose hope in them. How, uh, and I was thinking about us in terms of all this today as I was thinking about this, believing all things. What does that mean? How, do we, how are we supposed to apply that? I, I, of, when I think of all of our church, I think that I can say this with all sincerity. I don't believe there's a single phony or bad actor among us. I believe that. I believe that the people that are here, the people that I'm walking with, the people in our churches, the people sitting at our communion tables are sincere people who want to follow Christ. And they're working in their lives to do just that. That's my baseline, that's my root belief about the church. But how easy is it when we get into the midst of conflict and trials To assume that that's not the case. To lose your belief in that. And it hopes all things in the sense that it's hopeful. It's full of hope. Like there is a way, there is a way to overcome. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. There's a way to get through these things that we're hopeful. That it's, it's going to work. The, the grand experiment of the church of Jesus Christ is going to work. We're going to figure out how to deal with our stuff. We're going to figure out how to walk a narrow path. We're going to figure out how to take each other by the hand and make our way to ushering in the kingdom of God. We're going to be together, brothers and sisters, a holy family at the return of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be a spotless bride without wrinkle or stain or anything like that. We really hope, like in a convictional kind of way, that there's a way through. And it endures. It's here for the long haul. It's not going anywhere. It's going to stick it out and see it through. It's not ready to run away. And because of that, he can say, charity never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, and that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. 
I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. You know, the point is, we're children right now. We're just children. This, I can say that individually and collectively with us. We're just children, brothers and sisters. Just kids. And there's a lot of stuff in the way. A lot of stuff that's not eternally important. We're bringing a lot of things. Like we're, There's a lot of childishness among us. I don't, I don't mean... I mean in this, in this point in in human history, in this point in the church's history. This isn't the final stage. This isn't the eschaton. This isn't the resurrection. This isn't when the faith becomes sight. This isn't when all things are manifest. This isn't when there's no more need for faith because we can see everything as it is. Now is a time of immaturity and childishness and we are going to deal with that that's going to bring problems in our collective and individual lives. But the thing to hold on to, the thing to grab a hold of, the thing to believe in is that charity is the thing that we can see from this vantage point that goes on for eternity. It's the thing that never goes away. Our problems, our short-sightedness, our the features of our weaknesses and our character flaws, those things are going to end. Gravity is going to end. The world is going to end. But the thing that's not going to end is charity. It's the universal. And the more that we can, the more that we can grab a hold of that collectively as a people, the more that that can undergird our conversations, our interactions, our relationships, the more that we're embracing charity, the more mature, the more eternal, the fruit of those things will be. So I want to remind us of those things. I want to remind us in a way that we take stock. Remind us to think about where, where are we? How have we been, how, how are we scoring in that, in that way? Have we been operating in a place of charity? And we'll know if we have because it will heal things, it will fix things, it will make things better. So I want to recommit myself I, taking stock of these things and reassessing my life in terms of am I being faithful to these things? Where am I failing these attributes of love? Where is my life not showing the fruit and the evidence of these kinds of attitudes and set those things in order. I hope we all do.